Luke chapter 15, verse number 1, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. And he, Jesus, spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent, it, and he sent him in, into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but... When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now the elder's son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. 
And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, and I, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him that fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me. And all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Verse number 10 is the text for this morning's message. Verse number 10 says, Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. I trust that uh, the word of God and the impression of the value of one will be real uh, to each of us this morning. You know, a good movie has a backstory. And those who know the backstory will see subtle nuances in the unfolding of the story in the movie that people who don't know the backstory won't even notice. That's why when you watch a good movie a second and a third time, you see things you never saw the first time you saw it. You learn more of the backstory. You begin to notice things that you didn't notice. And you find out that an actor said something that just went over your head, but all of a sudden you realize, wow, that really has a significance, knowing the backstory. Uh, you'll, you'll pick up on statements. You'll your understanding of the story will be more colorful as you understand the backstory. Now, in a movie series, those who watch the episodes in order have the same impact. They see things in later episodes, and had they not seen the earlier episodes, especially the pilot for the series they lose some of the reality of what is being said and done. They could still enjoy that episode, but they really don't understand that episode like someone who watched everything in its developing order. You know, the same thing is true of the Bible. When we jump into a story in the New Testament without understanding the big picture of the whole development of human history from the very beginning... And that's what the Old Testament is all about, telling us the backstory so that we can understand the New Testament. When, when one jumps into a story in the New Testament without an understanding of the backstory, they, they'll enjoy the story and they'll learn from the story, but they'll miss some level of understanding that the person sitting beside them picked up on because they knew the backstory. And so when they read, so-and-so said such-and-such, the person who knew the backstory 
sees a whole lot more and hears a whole lot more than the person who doesn't know the Old Testament, doesn't know the backstory of human history and humanity. I said a few moments ago, Luke is my favorite book of the Bible that explores uh, missionary themes. Uh, when I've had the opportunity uh, on occasion to preach a missions revival in another church, I'll sometimes preach every service out of the Gospel of Luke because there's some key parts of the Gospel of Luke that are dramatic in this thing of world evangelism. One of those chapters is Luke chapter 15. And here in Luke chapter 15, we're introduced to a story that shouts, the value of one, the value of one, over and over again. As a matter of fact, that's the whole lesson of Luke chapter 15. There's value in one person that is reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our 2022 missions theme and our church theme is the value of one. And in order to understand the nuances of this passage, we need to understand something of the backstory that makes this story explode in our understanding. You see, the Israel of Jesus' day lived in a specific culture, the culture of Israel at the time of Jesus Christ. But that culture had developed over many, many generations. And that culture was what it was in Jesus' day because of the multi-generation development. It began when their distant ancestors were suffering in slavery in a country we know of as Egypt. They were in bondage. They were enslaved. And they were suffering deeply. And so they cried out to God. They cried out to God over and over, year after year. They cried out to God that God would deliver them from the bondage that they were in. Finally, God did deliver them. God personally intervened and supernaturally delivered them from the bondage of slavery through his miraculous intervention. That intervention involved the death of Passover lambs. The innocent dying in the place of the guilty. And every home that believed what God said about the impact of the innocent dying for the guilty. Every home that took God in his word and slew a lamb that night and applied its blood to the doorposts and little of their homes. When the death angel passed over that night, went through the land of Egypt that night, he passed over the homes that were protected by the blood that had been applied personally to that family. And that family was saved from the judgment of the death angel that came through that night. And so they were redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. And something crystallized in the existence of a people group. God supernaturally and personally intervened and delivered them from slavery. And after they left the land of Egypt, God instruct, instructed them on how to live their lives in such a way that he would be pleased with his purchased people. 
What is redemption? Redemption is the purchase of something. It's paying a price to gain the ownership of a commodity. And in the Bible, when God speaks of his redeemed people, he's talking about the people whom he purchased with the price of the blood of his own son on Calvary's tree, acquiring the ownership of a commodity, the life of that individual who personally experienced the intervention of God in their life, redeeming them from their sin, setting them free from the bondage and slavery of sin. And so a redempted people, a people of redemption, came into existence. They received the law of God on Mount Sinai, and they, and they became an identity, they became a nation. God gave them laws to live by. He explained to them how they could live as a nation to please him. And the people in that nation were people who had personally been redeemed by the blood of a Passover lamb. Those individuals had a personal relationship with their Redeemer. As of that redeemed people, they, they had kids and they taught their kids about redemption. They taught their kids about the power of the blood of the Passover lamb. They saw their kids come to know Jehovah God as Lord and Savior and have a personal encounter with God and be saved. Their lives were shaped by the morality of God given to them at Mount, Mount Sinai. Their lives were shaped by God's sense of justice and by God's truth. And God gave to them as a people the responsibility of taking the message of redemption to the entire world. And we read in the Old Testament about how God expected Israel to be the light of God to evangelize the world. Around that nation grew traditions, sometimes opinions based on something God had told them. A culture developed. Generation after generation, those traditions and practices, those beliefs and opinions shaped their culture. And over the generations, some were born and raised in that culture who lived according to those customs, who lived according to those traditions, but they never had a personal encounter with Jehovah God. So what happened in Israel was the development of a culture that in its origin, in its distant ancestors, who had a personal encounter with God and were saved by the blood of a Passover lamb, became a nation of people with traditions and opinions and beliefs that were often based on what God said. But they lacked a personal relationship with God. They'd never been born again. And over the generations, that nation of Israel, that culture of Israel, grew to include both people who had a personal encounter with God and were saved, and people who followed the traditions rooted in the beliefs of their ancestors that did not have a personal relationship with God. 
And this resulted in their culture becoming a religion with tradition and practices that had deep meaning in their distant ancestors' lives, but had just become traditions to them. And they had no relationship with God. They just had a religion that was true of their culture, that had developed over generations, that was rooted in the personal salvation experience of their distant ancestors. A culture with religious tradition based on truth, practiced by people who had no personal relationship with God, just doing what they'd always done. This is the, the nation of a dying religion filled with a mixture of people with all various levels of cultural influence from the past scattered amongst them with people who had a genuine, vibrant, personal relationship with God who had saved them. That's the Israel to which Jesus Christ spoke the words found in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 opens up introducing us to the characters of the movie. As most good movies and its opening moments will introduce you to key people that will play important roles throughout the movie. And so verse number one tells us about publicans and sinners. Verse number two tells us about Pharisees and scribes. And so God introduces us to four groups of people that were very different, but very representative of the culture to whom Jesus Christ came. And if you haven't caught the connection... American culture was built on the Word of God by distant ancestors who knew God and traditions and holidays and opinions and beliefs developed over generations. But today's America has within it some people that recognize some of those traditions it's American. It's the foundation of our country. It's the culture of America from the way our country was founded. But they have no personal relationship to Jesus Christ. And then smattering, smattered across the country are some people that have a real vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And like in Israel's day, God has commanded us, like he commanded Israel, to take this message to the peoples of the world and to share with them the good news of God's love. I want you to focus for a moment on these, on these four types of people because I think you'll find that they're remarkably present in America today and probably all over the world today. There was the the publicans. Verse number one, verse one says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Who are the publicans? Who are these people, these publicans? The publicans, the sinners, the Pharisees, and Sadducees are all part of this mixed culture that have come down from their distant ancestors. 
But these publicans were people who, who recognized the history of their nation, of their culture, who knew some of the stories of the founding of their nation, who understood some of the cultural traditions that had come down to them from generation to generation. But the publicans began to view life through the lens of prosperity. What was most important in life to the publicans was being able to have enough money to open up the doors of opportunity to live life the way they wanted to live life. They had no deep scruples about the religious heritage of their country and their culture. They were more concerned with the bottom line, financially. Oh, they knew the stories of their tradition. They were Jews. They were Israelites. They knew how their country came into being. But they never had a personal relationship with a God who brought their ancient ancestors out of Egypt. And as they lived their life, they probably kept some of the holidays. They probably observed some of the traditions. They really didn't mean much to them. The focus of their life was how many zeros after the numeral in my annual income. How much stuff can I buy? How much stuff can I acquire? How many doors of opportunity can my money open for me to live life the way I want to live life? So they had no scruple about going to work for the Roman government, the oppressors of their people, the very government that was holding their nation under its thumb. They had no scruples about working for Rome. Rome was a great opportunity to earn a lot of money, to open a lot of doors, to live the way I want to live. And so covetousness and prosperity, opulence and money drove the lives of the publicans. And they were only so happy to take the job when it was offered to them and to become employed by the Roman government to be able to live the way they wanted to live. They were the publicans in the story. And yet, living such a life had caused some of them to learn the bitter taste of things that merely masked the gnawing emptiness of having no relationship to the God who created them. And all that their money could buy could only give them a fleeting little time of contentment. And then soon they saw something that they wanted more than what they already had. And so these publicans, some of them, some of the publicans, with this gnawing guilt in their heart, with the realization that stuff doesn't satisfy, that money will not provide lasting happiness, they began to wrestle with guilt in their souls. And along comes Jesus. 
He's got a message that's not religion. He's got a message that's not empty and hollow. He's talking about a God who loves them right where they are. They want to hear what he has to say. They're drawn to hear him. They were the materialists of Jesus' day. But then there was another group. They were called the sinners in verse number one. The sinners. Now, in the phraseology of the time, when when a group of people were called the sinners, it had moral overtones. We would say these were the people who lived for the short thrill of an emotional, immoral relationship. The sinners were, were wrapped with immorality. These people looked for satisfaction in the visual images on their computer screen or their phone screen. They were immoral people. It didn't matter what God said. What matters is what I want. And if this person can satisfy me, I don't care about anything else. And so the life of immorality, jumping from one immoral relationship to another, their lives were characterized by immorality. But some of them learned the bitter taste of short-lived pleasure that left them guilty for what they had done and longing for a peace that eluded them. And then someone said, have you listened to Jesus? And they were drawn to him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. The materialists of the day, the immoral of the day. And then there were the Pharisees and the scribes who didn't like the idea that Jesus would take time to even Speak to these materialistic, immoral people. And so the Pharisees and the scribes in verse number 2 murmured and said, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Who were the Pharisees and the scribes? These were the people who practiced the religious beliefs of their ancestors, but only the actions of their beliefs, not the soul of their beliefs. They didn't have a personal relationship with their Creator. They were cultural Jews. They practiced the traditions, but they were just hollow religious traditions that gave no life and gave no meaning to life. They were the Pharisees and the scribes who were filled with religious tradition but had no personal relationship with God. They practiced religion in an effort to try to appease God and earn His favor not knowing that the favor of God can never be earned by man's actions and efforts. These are, the, uh, these are the characters in the story. If you know the backdrop of where Israel came from, how their culture was established, the reality of a personal relationship with God that over the generations had become less prevalent amongst the cultural Jewish people who were religionists, without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And they're all here. And Jesus Christ is going to talk to them. And he's going to tell them a simple 
story. It's one story that had one central message. The story had three parts to it. The first part was about a sheep. The second part was about a coin. The third part was about a son. It was the same story. But he used three different pictures of the story. Probably because in that crowd of of materialists that were wealthy and, and had every door open to them, they could live as they wanted to live with all the money they earned from Rome. And the immoral people that lived from one illicit relationship to the next. One, ex, one, one, one emotional thrill on a television screen to the next. And then a group of people who were hard religionists who believed that only they earned favor with God and everybody else is going to go to hell. There's a lot of variety in this motley crew in front of Jesus, isn't there? Maybe some of them will relate to the story of the sheep. Maybe some will relate to the story of the coin. Maybe some will relate to the story of the son. And so he lays it out with three different chapters, if you please, of the one story. And the one story is simple. There is value in one person who gets saved. He tells the story about a sheep. A sheep whose life was in danger of death. A sheep that was lost. No one knew where it was. And it was in the middle of the night and the the coyotes and the, and the wolves were prowling, looking for an easy mark for dinner. And, and this one sheep out by itself with no one to defend it, it's lost. It's in grave danger because of its lost condition. There's a coin that's lost. Somebody had mishandled the coin. The owner of the coin said, I have lost it. The coin had been mishandled. The coin had not been shown the value of being taken care of, being kept secure, making sure the setting was tight so the coin would not be lost. It was believed to have been a, a, a dowry with ten coins in it, like a, a, a very large necklace. And one of those coins had become loose, and one of those coins had been lost by the owner. Its purpose is now unrealized. Its value is gone because somebody lost the coin by not taking care of it. And then there was a son. A son who was lost. He was away from home, a long ways away from home. He would rejected All the religious traditions of his father. All the things that his father had taught him. He took what money he could get out of his dad. Disrespected him. You you see an inheritance would not be given until after the death of the father. When he said give me the inheritance. He was saying dad I wish you'd die. So I could have what's coming to me. So I can get on with my life and live the way I want to live. His dad gave him the inheritance. And he rebelled against his dad and rebelled against everything that was right in his life. And he went and he wasted his living and riotous behavior. And now when it was all gone and when he, was, when he, when he came to himself, when he came to stop and think, what have I done with my life? Who am I? 
Why did I make the decisions I made? And when he came to himself, he said, I'm going to go back to dad. I'm going to say, dad, I blew it. I really messed up. I don't have anywhere to live. I don't have any food to eat. I'm sick of eating the garbage that's given to hogs. Could I just, could I just find a place to bunk out in the servants' quarters and eat the leftovers that come from the family table? Lost things. A lost wealthy person who was happy to work for the Roman government to be able to have all the money to live life the, life the way he wants to and he's lost. An immoral person who lives from thrill to thrill that lasts only for a moment and leaves them feeling so guilty. They're lost. A coin is lost. And the religionists think it's a waste of Jesus' time to even talk to the immoral people or the materialistic people. And Jesus Christ said, I want you to understand something. If a shepherd has a lost sheep, he goes after the one that's lost. If a woman has a lost coin, she goes after the one that's lost. If a father has a lost son, day after day after day, he gets up and he looks down the laneway and he looks as far as he can see and looks to see if maybe today my son will come home. When something is lost, somebody looks for the thing that is lost because there's value in that which is lost. And so the shepherd risks his life going out through the wilderness at night, putting his own life in danger because he knows there's a sheep that is lost. The cost and the time and the energy that it's invested in trying to find that which is lost, is it a waste? Is it a waste of time? To give up all of that time and all of that energy and all of those resources to go try to find just one simple thing that's lost. And so Jesus Christ says in verse number 10, I say unto you, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Now if you have in heaven... God and a bunch of angels, and there's joy in the presence of the angels. Who is it that is expressing the joy? Who's excited? <laughs> Who is bubbling over with excitement? So much so that the angels are looking at him and saying, Whoa, God is bursting with enthusiasm and excitement because one person that was lost has been found. Is it worth the time? Yes, Jesus was saying. I know she's just a harlot, but she's worth the investment 
of resources, time, money, energy. To reach that one immoral person. I know he's a man that frequences the, the, uh, the, the ladies of the night. I, I know he's just an immoral man. But he's worth the time I invest. He's worth the money I invest. He's worth the resources I invest. To try to get this message of my love. To try to get this message of my forgiveness. And to bring this message to that one who's lost. And if only one person is found after all of that investment, God in heaven will throw a fit of excitement and sing the hallelujah chorus and the angels in their presence, the angels will observe the joy of our God over one person that gets saved. I know he's a businessman. He flies around in his personal jet. He doesn't, he'll take any job. He has no scruples of right and wrong. He can be bribed. He can be bought. He'll do anything he, 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 that it takes to, to make another million. He's, he's a, an individual who cares nothing about anything but his bottom line so he can live like he wants to live. I know he's not worth much to you. But I'll invest all my time I'll invest all my resources. I'll invest my energies to try to get to that one lost rich man with the message of salvation. And if only one of them gets saved, Jesus Christ says there's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repenteth. The value of one the value of one person reached. Whether it was the rich publican drunk on the desire for more money or the sinner overcome with the cheap thrill of immorality or a son just wanting to live his own life and get out from underneath the shackles of his dad. Each one had value to God. God wanted each one. And he was willing to do Whatever it took to reach that one, the value of one. God went after each one. And then you know when God gets a team of one, ones, one here, one there, one here, one there, one here, one there. When God gathers together the ones, you know what he's got? He's got a church. <laughs> and you know what he tells them? Go and do the same thing all over the world. It begins with the value of one. It ends in the evangelization. It ends in Revelation 5 with an innumerable multitude of every tribe and tongue and language and, and every ethnic background and, and, and just a hodgepodge of international ones that got saved one person at a time who gather around the throne of God and sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. For thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood of every kindred, tribe, tongue, language. The value of one. Now, what can I take away from this Luke chapter 15 message? Let me give you seven statements. Number one, don't let your family carry the culture of Christianity without a personal relationship with God via personal salvation. Don't let your family merely 
live out the culture of Christianity without a vibrant personal relationship to Jesus Christ. They'll die and go to hell. The Israel of Jesus' day existed because as generation produced generation, produced generation, produced generation in Israel. Many of those people that were born and raised, gone to Passover, gone to the temple, keeping all of the festivities of the Jewish calendar, uh, gone to, to the synagogue every Sabbath, sitting there listening to someone read the Torah. They went through all the motions. They went through all the activities. They lived the culture of Judaism without a personal relationship with Jehovah. And now they show up at Jesus' feet as materialists, immoral people, and religionists who have religion without relationship with God. And Jesus Christ is trying to reach their hearts. That could be my grandkids. That could be your great-grandkids. Don't let your kids embrace the culture of Christianity without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Number two, think deeply about the value of one's soul. Your soul. Your child's soul. And the soul of every person around the world. The value of one. To God, every individual is very valuable. Think deeply about the value that God puts on every individual. Jesus Christ on different occasions said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, what, what, what do you have? You, you, you got the world. You, you flew in the Learjet. You, 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 you wined and dined. You, you had everything. And you die and go to hell. What good is that? Think deeply about the value of one's soul. Number three, ask what you can do with your time and resources to take the message of God's love to the people who live in this part of God's world. What can you invest your time in to reach one soul that lives a block over in that direction, two blocks over in that direction, a mile down the road over there? What can you do with your time? What can you do with your resources to reach one soul who lives in our Jerusalem? Number four, Ask what you can do with your time and resources to take the message of God's love to the people of the world. That's what the missions revival is all about, isn't it? Meeting more missionary families. We're taking the message of the gospel to more parts of the world because you know something? That person to whom they go to minister to has value to God. And if only one person ever gets saved because of the work of that missionary, God is excited about the work of that missionary. Think about what you can do with your time and resources to reach the people of the world. Consider adopting a missionary family from your church. Maybe a couple of missionary families. You say, well, what do you do that for? Because, you know, we've got so many missionary families that it would be really great if we've, got, if we've got a couple of members focusing on just one of those families reading the report letters, praying for them regularly, communicating with them. So one of the things you can do is you can adopt a missionary or a couple of missionaries. What can I do in a mission? You know, the value of one. I can, I can create a meaningful relationship with our missionaries that are with us. And then, and then number 
whatever. Number six, give to God. You see, the financing of God's kingdom is accomplished by people just like you and I all over the world who, who know that, that we're the stewards of all God's resources and the money in my bank account is not mine. It all belongs to God. I'm just a steward of God's possessions. And God wants me to use his money to promote his agenda. And his agenda is the advancement of his kingdom all over the world. And so, Community Baptist Church exists because the members of Community Baptist are very generous in giving to the general fund to be able to finance the work of Community Baptist Church locally and all that that costs. But we give away a quarter of a million dollars, almost a quarter of a million dollars the last few years. We give away to missionaries all over the world. Where does that money come from? It comes from people just like you. Who've said, God, I'm the steward of your resources. Now, how much of your resources do you want me to use to finance world evangelism? Pray about that. And then make a commitment to God. God, I'm going to do this every week or every month or twice a year or whatever. And I'm I'm going to invest your money back into your world by supporting the missionaries here at CBC. And then finally, number seven... was what I just said. (laughs) Number six was give to the general fund. That takes care of the home front. Number seven is the missions fund. And those monies are all directed toward the world. There's seven things that everyone can do. In light of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 15, that there's value in one. Could I give you a closing personal illustration of the value of one? Emnet, would you mind standing up? Now, you're short, so raise your hand up now. This is Emnet. She lives just down the road. Her sister, sitting beside her, is named Ficker. Ficker walked down the street one day and found CBC. Started coming to CBC. I don't know, a long time ago, a year ago. I don't know, it's been a long time. Ficker brought her brother and sister with her. Brought her mom with her. Last Sunday night in Master's Club. Heather, would you stand up? Last Sunday night in Master's Club, God used Heather to pray and lead Emnet to Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that if all we ever accomplished in 26 years of ministry at CBC was that young lady getting saved last Sunday night. It's been worth every dollar I've ever put in the offering plate. It's been worth all the time I've invested in 26 years. You know why? Because there's value in one person coming to Jesus Christ and getting saved. And that's what Jesus Christ wanted to convey to us in Luke chapter 15. The value of one. Thank you, Emmett. You can sit down. What, what's going to happen this week? Wednesday, these missionaries are going to start coming through, and we're going to see video presentations, and we're going to sit down and eat meals with them, and we're going to hear them preach sermons, we're going to hear them share testimonies, and all of them are going to spread out and go all over the world to various continents with a message of God's love.
Because the people to whom they're going have value to God. And if they have value to God, they need to have value to us. If they have value to us, we'll do everything we can to help these missionaries get to the places that God has called them. That's what our theme is this year. The value of one.